Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest reveals the five seemingly unimportant things from their life that they see as significant and would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they treasure and one that they rather regret, and then we talk about these things. It's simple, really. My guest in this episode is the best-selling writer and broadcaster, Lynn Truss, who had a worldwide number one best-selling hit with the book Eat, Shoots and Leaves some time ago. But she's never let that hold her back, writing hundreds of other books, dramas, short stories and newspaper articles throughout a glittering career. Having gained a first-class honours degree in English from University College London, she did a short stint as a library assistant before becoming a sub-editor of the Radio Times, deputy literary editor of the Times Higher Education Supplement, and then literary editor of The Listener. She wrote regular columns for The Times, The Independent, The Woman's Journal and The Sunday Telegraph, finally becoming a sports columnist at The Times. Then, each shoots and leaves happened as well as over 20 other books, numerous radio plays, dramas, talks and comedies, and appearances on Front Row, Saturday Review, quote-unquote, Excess Baggage, Loose Ends, and even University Challenge. I could go on, and I often do, but I think it's time to let Lynn do the talking. Well, most of it. I hope you enjoy it. So, Lim Truss, how lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you, Mike. And here we are in your, your gorgeous kitchen, <laughs> with the wind howling outside. Yeah. And I brought with me my time capsule. So, did you have trouble thinking about these things? I'm not good at lists. Uh, people often ask you, because it's obviously a very nice thing when you're asked, name your five best books, or five favourite books, or your five favourite things. I've never been good at organising myself that way. I don't have a favourite book, a favourite thing. 
And so I did find it quite difficult, yes. But I, I think I've been a bit random. <laughs> but I think the thing is, I, I do often find myself thinking, oh, well, that was something lovely, and I would like that. I'd like to remember that on my deathbed. You know, that's what I would keep things for, is for that moment when, you know, all is lost. <laughs> you're, on, <laughs> you're on your way, and you think... But that was really lovely, and I, I would like to hope that, that, that some things would come back to you. And some, and I know, of course, with many, many experiences, like when you're standing on a Greek island looking at the sea and you think, yes, this, you know that you can't bottle it, you can't take it home with you. And in fact, going through the airport home is enough to take it completely out of your mind. And that's such a shame. Um, so I do think the, the concept is a good one, that mm. if one could bottle things and have them return to you at some point would be a very lovely thing. In reality, rather than as a video on a phone? Yeah, it's very much so. I think it's sensation, isn't it? It's really sometimes about the, you know, how warm it is, what the wind is doing, you know, all that stuff. I mean, obviously, they are good They are good reminders, videos and things, but I don't tend to take many photographs. I don't tend to take... I take pictures of the dogs endlessly. I've got two dogs and I love them. And they're always sort of arranging themselves in interesting poses, and I take pictures of them. And I say, oh, but even those, when you look at them, don't quite do justice to them. No. So, uh, yeah, there are many things that don't survive that no. process, I think. When we put these in there, Lynn, mm-hmm. I promise, if I'm still around, which mm-hmm. I doubt, I shall rush to your death. I want to promise. <laughs> is, it very, is it very grim to talk about your deathbed? Is that no, sort of strange? No, no, I think all talk of death is good. Uh, yeah. you know, we should be aware of it. It makes mm. us want to live. Mm. Yes, that's true. So, let's have a look at what you've got. Okay. What, what would I, you like to put in there first? I made a list. A list? Um, so, I would start, I think, with my mum. It was a particular incident that I found incredibly funny. And it was uh, my mum, who died in 2015, she... Um, Gosh, how to describe my mum? She was quite individual. She was quite unusual, my mum, in lots of in lots of her attitudes. And of course, as I get older, I'm becoming more and more like her. I think oh, I know what she meant right now. Um, many of the things she used to say that I would, of course, complain about and, and argue with, I now think uh, she was right actually all along. But um, my mother was staying with me in London. I uh, have a flat in London, and um, when she was still able to sort of get about. I used to take her for Christmas, and she was staying with me at my flat in London. Her whole life really had become quite constricted, and uh, she stayed in a lot, and she mainly watched films starring Daniel Craig. I mean, all the time. I bought her every film he'd ever been in. She watched them over and over and over and over. She was obsessed with Daniel Craig, and she made painted pictures of him. Um, mm. There was something about his upper lip, I believe, that reminded her very much of my dad, and she just sort of was always trying to get in his face, and she watched him over and over. Uh, this obsessive quality about my mother is one that I have inherited, and I, I must say I find myself doing many things that are obsessive and thinking, oh, my Lord, I'm so like my mum. Anyway, she, um, so she was obsessed with Daniel Craig, and, ha- and after my father died, she watched lots of films that had swearing and violence, and things. she actually really liked violence. <laughs> I bought her Django Unchained um, because, you know, I would buy her Calendar Girls and Django Unchained because she really liked violence. So you so, do that thing of, uh, so if you think that's violent, <laughs> exactly. you should watch this one. <laughs> exactly, I was upping ante constantly. <laughs> so anyway, we'd be sitting there having a nice time and she would just come up with some vast, you know, girl with a dragon tattoo, that's good. You know, someone gets her head nailed to the floor, you know, you'd like that. So she's this tiny woman who said all this stuff. 
so she was staying at my flat over Christmas and she suddenly said, and she often said things out of nowhere, just like, have you ever eaten off a square plate? And things like that. She just suddenly spoke these things <laughs> in. And she said, yes, I have actually one. Um, she said, what do you do about your old documents and things? Do you, how do you get rid of them? And I said, well, you're supposed to keep them for about six years, you know, your old bills and things, but then you can just shred them or throw them away. And she said, well, I do shred them. I said, I know, I bought you a shredder, Mum. I bought you a shredder. And she says... No, well, you see, you can still put it all together. You can still see. If you put all the bits together, you can still see what's in there. So I've tried. I've tried burning, burning. <laughs> I've tried some, making glue and pasting it all together like, like papier mache And it didn't go because it's all too glossy. It doesn't melt. It doesn't melt in water. So I said, oh, well, Mum, um, you can get a, such a thing as a cross-shredder now. So I had one, and I went and got the bits, and I said, here we are. I just, 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 you know, showed her cross-threaded bits, and mm. that would be better, wouldn't it? So the next morning, Christmas Eve, I went out ostensibly for milk, and I went to the corner, and I went to Ryland's and bought her a cross-threader. And I came back to the flat, and I said, here we are, Mum, come in the kitchen, come on, come on. I unpacked the box, and I plucked it in, I got some stuff, you know, there you are, there, what do you think? And she said, you don't fuck about, do you? <laughs> which apparently is a line from layer cake and she had remembered it for just such an occasion stored it up perfectly brought it out at the exact right moment and it's the funniest thing she ever said and honestly i've i've everything you know you might want not to forgive your mum for i absolutely forgive her for that i think it was the funniest funniest moment of my life possibly when she just looked up at me you don't fuck about, do you? Was she a woman who swore a lot? No, never. Never swore. Never swore. It was just that she watched all these films and she knew all these lines and she knew that that was a perfect moment to say that. It did become a bit of a thing um, with my assistant, Gavin, from then on. He would always say it to me whenever I was sort of being a bit quick with things, you know. But anyway, so you don't fuck about, do you, is a a great moment I would like to remember. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a line that people want to use. (laughs) would definitely <laughs> apply that to my life and wait for the right moment mm. yes mm. Mm. well well done Vicar well you done, don't fuck mom. around do you well done my mum yeah. <laughs> oh, how old was she when she died uh, 80 she'd just been 88 she was 87 when she went into hospital she became 88 in hospital but she had a fall she did terribly well because she was very independent and she had all the marbles she was very quick and so on but she, she there were things were beginning to escape her she wasn't she once overslept very badly took some pills some sleeping pills again and basically missed a day and then was very confused about it and she got very angry that the radio times was telling her the wrong thing that was on the television <laughs> she tore up the radio times in anger that yeah. it was getting it wrong when it was obviously that she she was on the wrong day um so she had a few moments like that but generally she was say she was painting and watching this heli, but she didn't go out really. And if I, when I went to see her and offered to take her out, she didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, her neighbour would say to me, "You should, it's a German woman. You should take her out. You should take her out. She wants to go out." But she didn't. So um, no, she did very. She did incredibly well. And she'd had many, many things wrong with her. She'd had operations of all sorts on all sorts of her body. At one point, she had a crisis moment in the family when my sister was dying. My mum had a mini stroke and I went to see her. I went straight over and she just said, I can't think of words, you know. She was able to sort of, she knew what I was, she knew, she just couldn't remember words. She went to bed. I 
obviously I got the doctor first thing in the morning. And the doctor who came wanted to test my mum for various things and so said, you know, could you press my hand, press my hand with your hand? And I said, oh, my mum had a fall and her wrist was broken. She hasn't got any strength in her wrist. She said, oh, well, push with your foot. And I said, ah, when she fell, um, it broke her pelvis, so she hasn't got any strength there. And he said, will you smile for me? And I said, ah, well, my mum had this jaw operation, which means that she's, all, she's a bit <laughs> lopsided, so you can't really tell by that. Um, you know, and everything, her hearing, her eyes, <laughs> absolutely every vital sign was compromised by all these various things she'd had wrong with her, but she kept on going. So she had enormous willpower, I think, really. Um, I mean, you know, she was difficult, really, but she was very, she was funny, and she was very original. Um, people who met her, you know, well, of course, when you take your friends or your friends meet your mum, you want them to take your side instantly. And they would always say, ah, oh, she's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> she's no, no, brilliant. she's a cantankerous old... No, no. Yeah. <laughs> they all really liked her because she was so interesting. And mm. funny. Yeah. To know that that's a funny moment. I know, she did. Just to save that up and uh, to do yeah. it as a joke yeah. is brilliant it's in your brilliant. 80s. It's brilliant. Yeah, bless yeah. yeah. her. Well, we'll take that. Okay. we we'll definitely take that moment. <laughs> and we won't fuck around. <laughs> We will put it straight into the time capsule. Yeah, yeah. How lovely. So what's your second one? Anyway, well, I'll go for the bad one, because I think I'll, I do want to get that out of the way. It was, again, it was, 20, it was 2015, which is the year my mum died. Um, started very badly for me, which was... And it was when I had a book out in the UK called um, Cat Out of Hell. So it's called Cat Out of Hell, the first of my evil-talking cat books which I wrote for a lovely publisher who was who had a hammer list and, and had asked various people to write novellas in the sort of hammer genre um and I said well can I do evil talking cats and she said yeah and I was very pleased with it I thought it was funny and it had a sort of M.R. Jamesy sort of overtones and things and also interview with a vampire kind of overtones as well so undead cats <laughs> and, um and I really really enjoyed writing it and then it was picked up by an American publisher who was a tiny, tiny American publisher. And they asked if I would go and do a tour in the States to promote the book. And I had, obviously, 15 years ago, whatever it was, when I did Eat, Shoots and Leaves, I had been on tours of the States and they had been triumphal tours. You know, they'd obviously been, you know, you were everywhere you went, people were so excited to see you. There were hundreds and hundreds of people turned up, thousands of books sold. It was wonderful. And at the time, I was very aware this is unusual um, because I had also had the opposite experience in my life. So I knew this was a fantastic experience. And very and everywhere I went, people would say, this doesn't happen. We've got so many people. We're having to set up another, you know, another room with monitors because there are so many people. So I knew it was really, really bizarre and that it wouldn't happen again. But when I went over, <laughs> I went over in 2015 on... Um, tiny tiny budget um they flew me over via iceland you know i stayed in a terrible hotel in new york <laughs> i stayed in a, at the hotel in boston i thought well i'll go to boston i've got a day but i'm there they haven't sorted out any media so you just go to these places and then do a bookshop in the evening or a library or something nobody came <laughs> and um and when i went to boston i thought well i'll go you know i can go into boston i can go to the museum i love that museum the place they set me at was in off a highway, miles outside Boston. And when I looked up the name of it, say it was called the, you know, the Brook Inn or something, 
the first thing you found on Google was Brooklyn stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! And I think it was when I was there that was at my absolute lowest point, and it was just awful. And I thought I really thought I would have the resources to cope. You know, this is just for two weeks. The paid holiday. It's <laughs> no, I didn't think that, no. but I did think I can endure this. You know, I can read books, I can make my own amusement. And I can cope with the fact that nobody wants to come to these events and nobody cares about this book. And the publisher hadn't paid the advance even. And, and I was spending money. I was having to spend money um, because a lot of things weren't paid for and, and I had to pay for the hotel or something. And uh, it, was, it was just grim. It was so, so grim. And I felt so low. And I did think, is it? This might be the end. This might be where I have to say... No, it's all over. Mm. So it was a quite a, a, a grim time. And, you know, the, the, the worst thing, I think, was what's hanging about at airports, where it's always difficult. You've always got to sit there for a long, long time. But because of the cheapness of my tickets, I was always the last person onto the plane. So I'd be the first person in the lounge, as always, you know, reading my book, la, 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 la. And then they would start calling people on, and I would have a zone letter, you know, and it would be the last person on every time and that just was very very depressing mm. and it was surprising it was surprising how quickly I felt utterly depressed and thought well you know try, thinking about escape you know should I try and go home miss my home terribly it was a really a really rotten time nearest I've been to depression I think really and you, you suddenly felt worthless yeah yeah and you shouldn't always you know I know this you know I didn't I hope I didn't set myself worth by the previous stuff so, you know, I hope I didn't. But it was still... I felt... I felt really um, aggrieved. I felt very um, abused in some way. You know, I just thought, this is not the way to treat people. You should not treat anyone like this. No. And I felt um, really, really hurt. Really... Yeah, I think the self-worth was attached to that, I did think. Mm. This, this is it, is it? This is it. You absolutely know the transient nature of notoriety and fame and, yeah. and success. Mm. All these things, they come, they go, and they mm. don't really mean anything. Yeah, I know. They're nice when they happen, but yeah. uh, I've never known you be a person to rely on it. No. So it, it sort of surprises it me, is. really, that you were so badly affected by... I know, so quickly, by, by, by feeling that actually what you've done was completely unappreciated. Was mm. that it? Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose it was. Um, I wasn't angry. I just felt really depressed. Um, and I suppose it was partly the environment yeah. <laughs> because I don't normally put myself in those environments. So yeah. I, you know, being in these ghastly hotels on a ring road, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, can be fantastically depressing. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. No, I think I had it when I was doing sports writing. The same sort of feeling actually, because they would, they were just so dim about things like that. So if you were going by train, they put you in a hotel on a road somewhere, and if you were driving, they put you in a hotel you know, mm-hmm. in the city. And um, and things like that, oh, you know, really does affect you when, yes. when you're there. So That's an extraordinary period in your life, though, isn't it, to go from being... You were the theatre yeah. critic, were you? For, uh, I was TV critic, really, TV for, critic. for the Times. Um, oh, yeah, and, and sports writing and so on. And then you, they suddenly said, would you write about sport? Yeah, that's right. I mean, right. were there any other women involved in that area? There were a few women about, but mm. not many. And, it were, and they were... They were proper sports writers, you see. That was the other thing was that I wasn't. Um, so I was coming into it as someone who was writing about this. You know, isn't the grass green? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Those lights are bright. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
why is everybody cheering that bloke when he never does anything worth, you know, and that sort of thing. So I was bringing, you know, actually valuable insights sometimes. um, And I think it was a very, very good assignment. Generally, I did it for four years. And I think as a writer, it's a great assignment to be allowed to say various things that sports writers either can't see or don't want to say. So it was it was really good from that point of view. It was a great, mm. but in terms of creature comforts, it yeah. was it was horrific. Did um, I read somewhere that you were offered while you were doing that job the job of uh, film critic? I was, I know, and I was talked out of it, and I, 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 I yeah, I remember that moment. <laughs> but it was two years in. It was just before the World Cup, I think, in ninety eight. It was ninety six to two thousand. Well, you wouldn't job. want to miss the World Cup. I would. I would not have missed the World Cup, and uh, yeah, no, the film critic retired or something editor asked me editor in person said would you like to be the new film critic and I went and told my sports editor and he is a very clever man and very nice man I loved him Mm. but he you know he did make an impassioned speech about how much better it is to be out of doors watching something unfold in front of you and not in some horrible you know viewing theatre in Soho watching people having their heads cut off Mm. Your mum would have liked it. Yeah, my mum would have loved it. But in terms of longevity as a job, oh my goodness, film critic, it does last. I mean, most, most people do sports writing for a very, very long time, but I did it for four years and that was quite enough mm. for me. And their home lives, oh my goodness, you know, it's not very good for that. Um, but I remember, you know, when I was at the World Cup in France, while I was there, my mum had a fall, actually. Well, it was the fall that broke her wrist and broke her pelvis. And... I was only in Paris, it wasn't that far away, really, and I was able to come back and see her without missing a column. I wrote something on the Eurostar, and I wrote something else going back out again. But I was in bits. I was at some match at the Pop des Princes in Paris and sitting next to the bloke from the Times who was doing the proper match report, and I was was very upset. And he said, oh, we've all been there then, you know. I was in Japan covering athletics when my dad died and so-and-so was, you know, and this was a sort of his way of consoling me, you know, which is, we've all, well, the job, you know, the job takes you away from the, what's really important in life. And and for me, that was even more depressing. Yes. Oh, well, you've accepted that, you know. Well, you know, my child was born when I was writing about tennis. Or something. You know, you just think, well, no. You know, how important is this tennis match in the scheme of things mm-hmm. compared with the birth of your child? And so I could never lose that sense of proportion that I think was uh, very much... It was always trying to tug it away from me. Yes. You know, and this is the important thing, is who's going to win this match? Who's going to win this match? And you and thought, there's another match. There's another... <laughs> there's something else going on in life. Well, I feel for you having ah. to go around... <laughs> around America and staying in these awful places oh, and have nobody turn up. Anyway, there you are. Well, I'm going to take that terrible trip. <laughs> horrible trip. And I'm going to lock it away. Yes, I'm And I'm going to put it right at the bottom again. of the time capsule so you, <laughs> you don't ever happen to put it again. <laughs> Thank you very much. You don't deserve to. I would love not to think about it. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> yeah, good. good. Excellent. So um, that's two oh. items we've got in there. Okay. What's number three? Okay, we have to take a short break here for some adverts. We will be back with Lynn in a moment. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. So, unless you suddenly feel the urge to rush out and buy something, let's continue with Lynn Truss and the other things she wants to put in a time capsule. Well, it's again to do with success, actually. I just thought one thing that I did, a, I've started crime writing recently. I've started these comic crime novels. And I was invited a couple of years ago to a, an event for new crime writers at something called Killer Women, which is a, a sort of day of stuff. And I was on a panel with three other writers. And obviously I was there as this old lad, you know, who's done, has been in the business, in the biz, you know, in the print for many, many, many decades now. You know, started out in journalism, I've written books, I've, you know, seen it all. Um, been on horrible tours of America. and Radio dramas. And many radio dramas. Many radio, radio dramas. dramas. But, you know, there I was with these other fresh-faced, happy people. And not really young, but flushed with the first success. And it was so lovely um, being with them because they had that excitement about their first book had come out. In all cases, they'd done quite well. And it reminded me of a particular moment that I would want uh, always to remember which was in about 1991, something like that, 1990 maybe. And when I was at The Listener magazine, which is in the 80s, I was literary editor at The Listener. And when Alan Corran came to be our editor, I think it was when he was there, he really wanted everyone to write for the magazine and I started writing for The Listener. And he wanted short stories and things. And I wrote a short story and it was um, a Christmas short story. It was a very cynical take on It's a Wonderful Life. It was sort of the opposite of It's a Wonderful Life. So, uh, you know, Angel arrives and shows a man what life would have been like if he'd never been born, and it all would have been better. <laughs> Everything, every person in his life would have had a more fulfilled, successful, happy life if he hadn't been around. Um, he gave a mortgage to someone who couldn't afford it. And, and, you know, they, all this stuff, um, he's caused misery, constant misery. And in the end, the angel pushes him off the bridge. You know, so. <laughs> it was very bleak. I, I've never written anything as cynical as that. But anyway, so I wrote this short story, and it was picked up by Duncan Minshaw at the BBC, who was in charge of all the short stories. And he had it read on the radio by Michael Williams, 
um, and then it was printed in a book, and it was printed in a book called Telling Tales, and there was a there was a launch for the book at Broadcasting House, some grim room, you know, lots very well lit, terrible wine, you know, those mm. one of those parties that I don't think they happen anymore. I don't know, I'm not invited, but you know, the people would have parties that were pretty grim in those days, but lots of people came. And the other people on, in the book were famous names. Frederick Raphael, Debbie Morrow. You know, there were people there who were famous writers. And, and all our names were on the front of the book. And my name was on the front of the book. And it was quite a heady. It was quite a heady experience. And afterwards, I wouldn't remember it except that. Afterwards, I was at the tube station, Oxford Circus, I assume, with my friend, Susan. And I was obviously laughing about and... Ticket man said, what's she on then? And my friend said, success. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And actually, I think it was just absolutely perfect. And I, I would like to say that. I remember her saying success in that way. Oh. Because it was, it was, I've never felt it again, really, as much. And there is, it was the idea of having a one story in a book. Yes. Was um, was so wonderful, so exciting, and so validating, and everything. It may have been in a magazine, which would probably would have probably sold to I don't know twenty thousand people or something, and this book would probably sell nothing. No. But it was so different that it was in a book, and mm. that someone had put it in a book, and it was alongside famous people. So yeah, so I think that moment of uh, in that tube station would be a nice one. Had you always wanted to write? I suppose I must have done, yeah, but I think I sort of crept up on it, sort of backwards. What did you do at university? I did English, but I didn't write... I wrote poetry as a teenager, and I wrote... I suppose I wrote I wrote songs when I was a teenager. I used to write songs. with <laughs> Joni. So, yes, I suppose I always wanted to write. But then I think because I went into literary journalism very early, straight after university, really, by a series of accidents, I ended up editing book reviews. So I knew about the world of books to a certain extent and I, I felt it wasn't for me I felt that it was for well middle class people I wasn't middle class mm. and I also once I went into when I was literary editor at The Listener I was very aware of more of fiction because we didn't deal with it the times higher which is where I started out we only dealt with non-fiction academic subjects but once I went into you know really being aware of what novels were published I just thought this is a world that I'm not part of. They're middle-class people who who's all their kids get a leg up because they're, you know, mm-hmm. they know this world. And, you know, I'm just not part of it. So I was writing. I was writing journalism. I was writing interviews. I was, you know, always very you know, interested in writing as a critic, maybe. But I didn't expect to write stuff myself. And I started to get very frustrated with the fact that I wanted to write, but I wasn't somehow allowed to, and I wasn't allowing myself to. And I thought, I'm stuck in a, I'm stuck in a sort of circular thought patterns or something, that I can't... It's almost like a superstition or something. I can't break it. And so I went to um, a therapist who turned out to be the exact right psychotherapist. She was into... Her thing was cognitive analytic therapy, which is about sort of looking at mistaken ideas about yourself. It's about sort of getting stuck. It is about getting stuck and about how you can unstick yourself. So I went to her only for a short time. It was like four months, but um, it was very helpful. Mm. And at the end of that, I just, you know, started. 
because I already had an agent and everything. I had wow. an agent because of my writing in the Listener and elsewhere. I already had an agent who was saying, "Why don't you write a novel?" So um, I did then get started. Mm. And, and actually, yeah. when you get into it, you find that it is strangely egalitarian. Yeah. Yes. That view that you had of, of the mm. writing world as being just for mm. people who know people mm. isn't actually true. I don't like the world, though. I have to say, I still can't. I went to a party before Christmas. I thought, I really must. I, really, I, I mean, I've become very solitary, hermity. But um, I'm always invited to the Sunday Times Christmas books party. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go. I'll go. And I'll, you know, I'll see some people I know. And I did see many people I knew. But I didn't like that world. I just felt uncomfortable. I felt, you know, some people I didn't know were sort of just giving me a look. And that's enough for me. I just say, oh, well, no, I, just, I know. I'm not, I'm not happy here. I'm not very comfy. So although it was perfectly nice... And I just thought, what are these people doing? Are they always at these parties? They're still at these parties? When do they ever get time to do any writing? Yeah. So um, I, I don't know, it doesn't suit me, and I, I've got to know myself better and think, just don't worry about it, don't go. And you are fantastically <clears throat> normal. I, mean, I, well, I only <laughs> I say normal think. in the sense of your reaction to things are very mm-hmm. sort of straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember specifically being in Bristol with you when you rang oh. your agent to mm-hmm. find out how well each shoots and leaves oh. had done. And your yeah. reaction to it, as far as I was concerned, was, was really beautiful. Oh. In as much as you, you mm-hmm. said, oh, I think it's done quite well. <laughs> and then you rang him and you were so shocked by this level of your success yeah. yes. that you, um. you stopped the recording and we all went out for dinner. <laughs> I do remember that was a good time. I bought a lot of champagne, I seem to remember, on yes. the last day. Oh, it was such a lovely recording. That was really good. But that, to me, yeah. sums you up, that mm. uh, that idea that actually you don't expect life mm. to be ridiculously fantastic. Mm. You're, you're looking to write good things and hopefully people will read them. Well, I think there's, there's a bit more scheming to it than that, in a negative way, actually, in that I think at the sort of level of success that I reach, there were many, many ways of going, of pursuing that and, uh, and of exploiting that if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I had absolutely the opposite reaction which is that I really think that's a trap. I thought it was a complete trap, and I didn't want to do it. And in order not to do it, I had to have uh, I had to leave my publisher actually, who really, really wanted me to continue to write the same sort of book. They wanted you to become the punctuation lady. Well, I am the punctuation lady, well, whether you know whatever. But they really wanted me to keep you know digging that hole or mm. keep the sort of um, raking in the, the lucre. And I just thought. But it was a that was a huge trap, and honestly, I mean, I was the book is if you read the book, it's it's clear that I'm not saying I am the world's leading expert on this subject. But if you have success in something, people then it, it somehow gets muddled. <laughs> people think that you are the bigger the success, the more of an expert you are. And I thought this was a real um, flaw in the logic. And I also thought, you know, I don't want to expose myself to to more of this. Because actually, I was very lucky that at the time the book came out, social media had not really started. This was 2003, 2004. So I wasn't exposed to all that. I got quite a lot of negative stuff that I could not cope with at all, even though it was quite minor. And everyone said, no one knows about that, Lynn. Um, Anything I found I could not cope with. And so knowing myself, and I actually did therapy again then. I did some therapy then just to cope with... Why do I feel so humiliated if someone's horrible about me in print or in, in media in any way? Why do I care and so much? Why do I care? 
and we went looked into it and turned out I cared a lot and we didn't really we weren't able to solve it and I just thought no the thing to do now is to devise ways that you can be happily productive but without exposing yourself to too much of that mm. and so actually doing crime novels although obviously there was the background to the the crime novels is that we did these lovely series on the radio so it was a natural it was a natural thing to do but it's also quite a natural way to you can produce quite a lot as a crime novelist you can be quite successful as a crime novelist but people don't have any expectations that you're going to turn up on telly or and they don't take take views about you as a person they don't sort of say, you know, anything nasty about you. Why would they? So in a way, I, you know, I have been quite devious. Oh, I'm very, I've planned it anyway, as far as I can, to be able to work without having that exposure. Mm, that makes sense, I think. Mm. I know I'm a coward, but I can't cope, I couldn't cope with it. Um, and I assume, as we've said, you know, that it's a very transient thing anyway. So... It's very funny. Our niece is, is quite harsh on famous people. She's always saying, well, they shouldn't do it. They can't cope with it. I'm utterly the opposite. I always have been. I've always seen it as a sort of human cost mm. to putting yourself in, in the way of other people's unpleasantness. But what, why should they have to put up with it? What I gives know. people the right to be rude to somebody? I mean, most people think that if you are famous, then you, then you deserve what you get. You take the money. You get the fame, you know, your face is on the papers, you know, then you should put up with being slandered and, and being, perhaps saying horrible things about you. But um, I have never taken that view. No. <laughs> I've always thought that uh, it's, it's too high a price to pay. Mm. So it's a very bad thing. Mm. Anyway. Well, what they all need to do is to go into Oxford Street Station <laughs> and have your friend Sue say, success, success. I, know. I want to hear that echoing through the, the hallways. Everybody stops and turns. It's a moment in a film. <laughs> Who is this woman oh, with success? She is very funny. She is a great colleague. When I was at The Listener, um, one night as I was leaving, I was using the lift and it stuck. The lift got stuck, and I was still. It just just went down a few inches, and I was still there, so I could still look out through the <laughs> through the thing and was knocking and waving, you know, at people walking past. <laughs> and eventually, Susan found out I was in there, and she came up, and I was saying, I'm, "I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the lift." And she said, "We might have to drill down from the top." <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, uh, ace in the hole, the film ace in the hole. And it uh, should take about two weeks. (laughs) And it was such a funny thing to say. Um, Anyway, that's it. (laughs) I'll ring your mum, she'll get Daniel Craig to come. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes, well, God bless you. What are we going to have now? Well, I thought, I mean, one of the things I honestly would, and I know I'm saying this to you because you're here, but, you know, because you'll think that, but. I would have one of the moments in Inspector Steen. I think being in the studio, you know, one of my things I'd like to have always is just being in the studio and laughing so much. We used to have such a lovely time when we were recording Inspector Steen. And especially, I especially read-throughs and stuff. We'd all sit there because everyone could laugh. And it was, oh, and you were wonderful, always wonderful. And we just would, um, you know, writing scripts... You know, people say, oh, it's a very lonely business. In a way, it isn't, because you have people in your head when you're writing them, you know, anyway, so they are with you. And I knew the performances that people gave, and I knew what I wanted. And then to be at the read-through and have it read out and have people... It was honestly, it was so lovely for me. 
So how many series did we do, Inspector C? Four. Four series. And then one extra, one... um, One with Jan Ravens? Yes, first series of Jan Ravens. Well, the thing, what happened there was that it was written for Sam Spiro, the part of Mrs. Groins, um, because Karen, the producer, and I had worked with Sam on a play, and we both thought she was great, and we loved the fact she could sing as well. Mm. So I wrote the part of Mrs. Groins for Sam... But she was having a baby, and she said she would be absolutely fine. Baby would be born by the time we needed to go into recording. And she kept us saying, well, actually, the baby hasn't been... You know, two weeks before, you know, baby hadn't been born yet. And she was saying, well, I'm sure it's going to be OK. And really, like the week before, a few days before, we were due to go through, and she admitted that she still hadn't had the baby. And Karen had this brilliant thought, which was that she was watching Strictly Come Dancing. And... Jan was on it at that point, but had just left it. She'd left it that week before. So she said, I think Jan Raymond's will have time on her hands because she would have put everything aside to do Strictly, and now she's free. Shall we try her? Yes, please, you know, let's... So, um, and Jan, as we know, had just come off Strictly, so she was a bit... She was a bit bewildered by the whole experience, as everybody would be. She was very bewildered by, sort of, emotionally, because she'd just left the show... But she was so wonderful, and she just came in and, and did it brilliantly. She can so, do almost anything. She can do. Oh, she's marvelous. But you know, for the second series, um, we assumed that Jan would do it, and then she couldn't do it. And so we were thinking, <laughs> do we go to the third person? So well, let's go back to Sam. Go back where we wanted to go. And where we wanted to go in the first place, and we got Sam, and so and then then we had Sam for the rest of rest of it. Um, and you and Matt Green as Twitten and John Ram mm. and Sergeant Munsey, and it was just a very and just, Janet Ellis. Oh, a lovely Janet Vine. What I remember about getting the scripts and reading them is that I immediately knew that man. I knew the inspector mm. terribly well. Mm. The moment I read him, I knew exactly who he oh, was. Good. And that doesn't happen very often. Oh, good. I, I knew exactly who he was, and I loved him. Mm. I loved all his foibles. Well, I love him. I love all of them. For them. Mm. And it's, it's a bit... That's why it's so good, writing them again. But turning them into novels, the main thing, of course, was... Realising you really must start at the beginning and when you don't know them, then the reader doesn't know them yet, even though I suppose some people will have heard the radio. But, you know, to play fair by everybody, you don't explain everything to start with. And so just building them up again mm. is, is a very interesting thing to do. But well, I've got to the point now on the fourth book that they are now pretty well, they're well set. Yes. And we all, know, we all know how they're going to react to everything. And, and I think the thing with the scripts was... They all had a particular relationship with everyone else as well. You know, not all the same, but you knew how mm. you felt about that person. Yes. And it was, it was consistent. And I think that's a, that makes it such a joy, actually, to write them. The really moving moments for me were when people, in a way, came out of character. Mm. When, they, when they behaved in a way that you didn't expect mm. them to. Mm. Well, they you had were... a great moment when you were brave. Yes. And that was wonderful. Yes, it I remember doing really that and, and actually really finding it hard to do. Mm. Hard to do because it was, uh, I, f- I found myself moved by the fact that yeah. this man suddenly was brave. Yeah. And he'd never been brave at all. No, it makes me weep thinking about it, actually. Yeah, yeah it was very lovely, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. So where did your love of Brighton come from? Because you weren't born here. Were no, you? I came here in the 90s, early, about 93, something like that. Yeah, when I started writing, actually, I think, I think when I started writing my novel... Um, I was living in South London. Ooh, well, Brighton's about to be blown away. Yes. <laughs> um, ooh, I love the sound of wind in trees. Yeah. That's, that's something Maybe it's a storm, Clive, or... 
another one. I'd another like one. it. How more mundane can the names become? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think I lived in South London in a flat on Gennington Park Road. And I think most of the signs that say Brighton, you know, so I, it's A23. I'd only been to Brighton a couple of times in my life earlier. Came down when I was 15 and went to see a Buster Keaton film. Went to see um, The General, which is one of the great films, greatest films of all time. Mm. But anyway, we came, uh, came with a boyfriend then. And then I don't think I came down really until I thought, oh, I need somewhere else to go write. Because I was writing, I was a TV critic and I was working on this on reviews quite you know i think that's a three a week or more four maybe but i did have time to write books i thought theoretically but i needed i thought another space another place to go where i could just write the book would be good Mm. so i drove down to brighton got the august the local paper and looked for rooms and i found a tiny flat in a nice a nice crescent in Brighton, I went to see it and just signed up on the spot. I remember saying to the guy, where are the shops? And he said, well, you know Western Road? And I said, no, I don't know where that is. He was a bit shocked. But I liked it once I came to be down here. But everyone, I think everyone in Brighton, it's the most boring thing about people in Brighton is that they're always a bit torn about London because it's still so close. Mm. I still have a flat in London, um, but I'm attached to it in some ways. But I also feel it'd be a great relief not to have it. Because I'm my, my London is so fixed at some earlier period. So when I'm walking down Longacre or something, I don't like it now. There's no. too many people. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's sort of... So there's such a cliche of age that you start to think, oh, but it shouldn't be like this. Yeah. I'm very much a sort of country mouse now, you know, and I do sort of stand at the ticket barriers letting other people go first and stuff. I can understand why, if you fall in love with that sort of area of life, that actually writing Inspector Steen and writing oh, those yeah. things in that period, in a much more mm. innocent mm. time. Yeah. I've always thought that the explanation that you gave me of Inspector Steen as a character mm-hmm. right at the beginning, you said, look, he's a policeman, but he believes that criminals are just showing off. <laughs> So if you ignore them, they'll go away. <laughs> that was one of the best notes I've ever been given for a character because it, it made him completely clear to me. Mm. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a completely made-up world. And, of course, 1957 Brighton Police was the time of this terrible scandal when they, you know people were sent to prison for, for corruption and so on. So it was actually... Um, it was not at all an innocent time. But mine is... No, my, my version of it is. But I, I enjoy making it comical, and I'm sure it is, it is, you know, an obvious psychological trick to cheer myself up. Mm. I have tried writing, obviously, my horror things. I did two of these books about the cats, and there were some quite horrific things, actually, in them. And I feel as though I, I have many, many horrific thoughts. I wake up in the morning, always, always, usually about the dogs. I see something terrible has happened to the dog. And... I think I have a sort of duty not to pass them on, really. It's quite important to me mm. to try to be, you know, have turn your imagination to funny things. Mm. Well, I'm delighted. I'm honoured oh. that oh. you've chosen uh, Inspector Steen. I know it's oh. one of your great works. Oh, I loved it. But to have been involved in it, and for oh. now that you choose it as a moment you'd like to remember, oh. I'm, I'm really honoured. Absolutely. Thank and, of you. course, involved other people, whereas most... <laughs> most of my things I realise... Well, writing is a solitary life, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Did I talk to anyone today? No, I didn't. 
I really like it. But I don't know. Maybe I've taken too much vitamin D. That could be it. <laughs> I think it was. I've got a, a daylight thing. I bought it many years ago. And when I in my old house, it used to be on the wall of my office. And I'd have it on permanently because it gave me lots of lovely daylight in mm. there. And I had it on probably permanently for like 15 years when I found the little booklet that says use it for 40 minutes at a time <laughs> and then switch it off. So, so you were overdosing. So it's possible. <laughs> but I've got a pineal gland or something that's the size of a coconut. You know, I mean, I just basically, I've overdosed on this sort of, you know, thing. So, yeah. Now, there must be one more. And we have one and more thing, just, yes. One uh, more thing to just, put into the time It's just my doggies. I love my doggies uh, very much. And you're always looking off obviously caring for them protecting them and also just thinking how much they mean to you and my dogs mean so much to me it's really it is a bit dog crazy lady but um but yeah curled up with them you know with the mentalist on the telly and you know two doggies on the lap and i'm just totally happy and i feel positively happy about that you know about them tell them off sometimes you know they were underfoot when i was making some scones earlier Go away! Go away! But, you know, basically, I think they're beautiful. I think they're gorgeous. I think they're funny. They're comforting. They're their own people. You know, they've very got very strong personalities mm. in Norfolk Terriers. And, um, yeah, I know it's sad, but, you know... It's, it's pathetic, not sad at it's all. It's pathetic, but it's just a very no. positive thing in my life. Uh, but I think I, it is for many people. Mm-hmm. For many people, it's it's one of the most positive things. Mm. And for some people, they don't have anything else. Mm. You know, so... Yeah. Well, I don't have much else. I have a niece. And, you know, all my family died, you know, before me. So I don't have much else, really. You do have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends, but I'm very bad at keeping up with them. Very well, bad at that. I think Christmas is a good time, you know, when I actually do get in touch with lots of people and, and make an effort to see people. I really do love Christmas from that point of view. But I think I'm very selfish with my time, and that goes with the job of being a writer. I, I, I know people who would... That's the dogs. Yes, there we are, you see. <laughs> so much part of your life. Jesus. That's that pigeon dog. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Well, I think that actually, mm. if you are happy in your life, mm. and your friends are quite happy that when you do get in touch, yeah. they're as happy to hear from you as they, yeah. they would be any other time, mm. then it works. Yes, yeah. So it's not worth worrying about. No, no. If you found that when you got in touch with your friends, they went, oh, you yeah. finally, <laughs> then then I'd worry about it, but mm. they don't. Mm. They go, Lynn, how lovely yeah. to hear from you. Yes, yes. And a lot of people are in the same sort of business and know, you know, the demands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, was, well, I think what I was going to say was I have friends who say they would love to write books and so on, but they would never, ever carve out the time that you just have to sit and, you know, and devote yourself to it. I mean, often with, always with deadlines, I suppose. I have a deadline one, one a year with these books, which is not, it's not that demanding compared with many other crime writers, it seems. But I think doing one a year from my point of view, has been terrific. It's been right for me, the right sort of pace. Although publication once a year, I'm finding incredibly slow because I've been now been writing these books for four or five years and only one and a half sort of in print yet. And it's that's slow, you know, that's very yes. slow process. So I feel as though I'm, you know, I'm really deep into the series. But as far as the readers are concerned, I've only just started. And yeah. I, think, I think when you read a series of books as well, you often don't start till there are about four or five of them because you think, well, if I like this, I want there to be more yeah, to be. So, so you're not going to start off with the first one, really. 
you need to have quite a lot going out, a lot out there before people are going to be interested. In yes, writing, and yeah. you've always been, I think probably because of your journalistic background, you've been a very good self-editor. Yeah, yes, and I like editing. I think editing is probably what I do best, actually. I think writing, <laughs> I sort of write in order to edit. I used to have, <laughs> in my very first book, actually, I had a character, a sort of a sub-editor, who sets off all the stuff that goes wrong, really. She's working on a little magazine, a little gardening magazine. And because they don't have any letters, any genuine letters from any genuine readers, she writes the letters um, herself. But she writes them deliberately ungrammatically so that she can go through <laughs> go through, correct, go through correcting them. And um, I sort of felt that obviously she was like self-portrait there. Um, and um, But I, you know, I'm very much a... Um, um, I'm massaging the text, as it were, going back to the beginning and changing, putting in new things, taking things out that are too long. I just do that all the time. Mm. That's my main... I could spend a whole... I did today, I spent... I went over my first three chapters really just editing today. Mm. So in the end, you've, you've progressed it not a bit, you know, in terms of length, but you know it's better and so on. So... That moment where you think... I just, I can't do any more of this today. Mm, uh, which yeah. is, uh, brings you back to the dogs, really. I mean, because then you say, <laughs> yeah. great, let's go for a walk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say this as I have a dog who jumped between my legs. Here. <laughs> like a little head just appeared. I uh, think I know. Uh, so I think they're basically yeah. saying to me that we've, oh, we've talked for long enough. Oh, and gorgeous. it's time we moved around. Okay. And um, we're going to have some scones, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Lynn, thank you so much. It You're was really, welcome. really good fun, and thanks very much. We should seal up your time capsule, and it's yours. Thank you very much. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Lynn Truss. Uh, That's the end, really. Well, but for people who are keen on details, I can tell you that um, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app, really, to hear all other episodes and to receive each new episode on the day of release. If you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. I mean, you clearly have got the time because you're still listening to the details. All right, here's some more. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for listening. Although, why you're still listening, I can't imagine. I mean, I I did warn you this was just details. You could have been two minutes into another episode of my time capsule for a start. Honestly. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.